believe it or not, like when I first started out as a, as a young paraskeman, as a young PJ, I didn't believe any of this stuff. Like if you had told me these things, I would have told you it was just psychobabble BS. This is sort of like the icing on the cake, and this is the edge or provides you with a little bit of the psychological edge you need to perform under stress. So these elite teams and athletes are paying a lot of attention to it and paying a bunch of money to have people help train them with it. But when it comes to us providing emergency (laughs) medical care to save people's lives in and outside of the hospital, we haven't really picked up on it. I'm like, really? Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. I'm a paramedic who decided to make this podcast when I couldn't find one like it. The idea is to dig into the minds of medics and take the time to figure out what is really brewing in their brains. I'm interested in how they make decisions under pressure and how they adjust to the job. In this episode, I talked to Michael Loria. He's a flight medic who brings several unique perspectives. First, he was a pararescueman, PJs as they're called, our elite special force medics whose training and missions challenge the human mind and body to perform under extreme stress. Exploring his experiences in the military alone would provide enough for us to talk for hours. But with Mike Loria, we get two more treats. First, he's a paramedic who is currently in med school, and that intrigues me. And second, he has a particular interest and expertise in the supporting science of human performance and decision-making under stress. He's a FOMED creator who, in addition to his own content, is also a regular contributor at MCRIT.org. I link to all his material, and there's a ton of it, in the show notes. This talk is jam-packed with information, so grab a pen and paper or check out the lengthy show notes at MedicMindset.com. In this talk, he shares actionable tools that listeners can try out on the very next call. Here's my chat with Mike Loria. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your very busy life to talk with me. I have a lot of burning questions that I've been wanting to ask you for quite a while now. No problem. When I was looking through your CV, I was like, so pretty much this guy doesn't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it's it's challenging. Well, as I said before, in one of our correspondences, the listeners of this podcast are true students of the game. They have long attention spans. They're willing to sit with you as, as long as you have, and they want to be challenged. They want to be good at being paramedics. And I think in your work, what you've identified, one of the things that holds us up in those first couple of years probably is just the stress of a new job, performing under that stress. I came across two of your videos, the first of which was Cognitive Paths Through Chaos. Mm -hmm. This is all part of FOMED, right? Free, open Mm -hmm. access to medical education. And you're taking your work as a PJ and implement some of those lessons learned into the medical environment, specifically emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. So in Cognitive Pass Through Chaos, you were directly educating. These are some steps that worked for me. The second video uh, that really lit my fire was Approaching Aristotle, where you basically call educators to the mat and say, you know, we've got to rethink, we need to do a gut check on how we're educating paramedics and all emergency uh, medical uh, providers. Uh, So Mm -hmm. thank you for both of those. Yeah, no worries. Let's first define, I don't want to call it a problem, but let's first define the challenge of working in Mm -hmm. emergency medicine. Specifically, can you comment on what happens physiologically, neurologically under extreme stress? Uh, So this is sort of uh, the crux of it. So it's interesting, over time, we've developed as a species that we have these intrinsic mechanisms of dealing with times of very high stress. And I'm sure almost all your listeners are are familiar with fight, flight, or freeze response. But a lot of very interesting things happen when you experience what we've sort of described as this unconscious uh, appraisal process. You see something that you don't necessarily feel prepared to handle or is novel and particularly complex or difficult. And your mind sort of does this, well, am I up to the task? Have I seen this before? Do I know I can do it? And if your brain sort of says, no, this is kind of scary, whether that be like a saber-toothed tiger or like a patient who's just vomiting frank blood, if you can't find a sort of pattern in your brain or you perceive that you haven't done this before, 
it starts to trigger this sort of mechanism that is designed to get you prepared to deal with very stressful situations. So you have activation of your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. You have an increased tone in your sympathetic nervous system. And that leads to all of the things that we're very used to feeling when we're a little bit nervous or stressed. Our heart rate goes up. We start to sweat. Cognitively, perhaps, it's most interesting because this leads to fundamental changes in how we think about things and how we're able to recall things and how we behave. So you see the, the frontal part of people's brains start to have decreased activity. And what we do is we begin to fall back on certain habits or things that we've done in the past in acutely stressful situations. And this poses particular challenges for people who have to do essentially higher level thinking or clinical processing on the fly when you're experiencing these stressful situations. To me, that's a problem for both in the very sense that that's what happens, but also in the grander sense of the way we've been training people in medicine, the way we teach people is essentially stems from the academic origins of medicine. And for a long time, a lot of people have ignored the fundamental human element. What happens when you're trying to take information and things that you've learned that theoretically we have this foregone conclusion that you're keeping it somewhere in the recesses of your mind. And then because you're able to bring that information to the forefront of your mind, say, on a test or in a classroom or in a non-stressful situation, that when the neurochemistry of your brain changes under stress, that you can absolutely do the same thing and you can recall bits of information and perform tasks under stress. And we know that that's not necessarily the case. So I think we need to change the way we do things. So in, in preparation for talking with you, I've been reading, you know, through some of your FOMED stuff on MCRIT and whatnot, and kind of looking at people under stress and seeing how they're responding to that environment. We just started our daughter in jujitsu, which is challenging her. And it, we kind of threw her to the wolves. <laughs> we threw her yeah. to the wolves and the coaches kind of threw her to the wolves because it's kind of like you just watch and do and you're going to fail and learn, learn by failure. And one of the things she was trying to learn was a backwards roll. Mm -hmm. She just kept getting stuck. Like she wouldn't get her head out of the way, basically. And so the coach mm -hmm. started trying to talk her through it. He's trying to tell her like, very simplistic steps of how to make this happen. I saw her stress and I saw her not being able to hear. And you've talked about audi auditory exclusion as a re mm -hmm. uh, early response to the stress that hearing is kind of one of the first things to go. Um, so auditory exclusion is a, was a big piece for me too, as I first started in the field. Did you experience mm -hmm. that? Oh, absolutely. On uh, a number of occasions. And when I'm really stressed, I still experience that from time to time. When we fly out to pick up a patient who's super sick and not doing very well, and they're on, you know, two or three or four pressors even, and they're not compliant with the ventilator and, and everything's going wrong, and you're trying to sort through these things, it's still really stressful for me. And I still will experience a lot of these same symptoms, even applying a lot of the stuff I'm learning. And it's, it's never perfect. I certainly haven't perfected it yet. So there are still times where, you know, my partner will be in the in the aircraft and I'll be like, hey, what was the last blood gas? And they're like, I, I told you twice, you know, like it was there. Or I'll say they never gave us the labs. They're like, yeah, they did. They they told us both that the labs are in with the paperwork. And I'm like, oh, crap. You know, like I don't, I don't remember hearing that at all. Right. I don't remember, you know, people passing me pieces of information because it's just one of the things that happens. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for actionable advice for listeners. I, uh, that's one of the reasons they come to the podcast is looking for things they can implement pretty quickly into their practice. You have a really good saying of uh, beat the stress fool. Tell me more about beat the stress fool. And then there's a P that goes on the end I've heard. So <laughs> yeah. So sometimes I throw the P on the end too. Um, I think it's interesting. And one of the most frustrating things for me is that some of these things like uh, the stress component ha have been talked about in EMS and emergency medicine. Again, they've been talked about in a very vague, very academic kind of way. And that's great that people bring people's attention. But if you can't propose at least something to try and help solve the problem, it's somewhat useless. So I try to think about my experiences. And what I did was I, I looked at my experience. I talked to a lot of friends. I talked to physicians. I talked to nurses. And when we discussed the topic, 
what I did was I tried to find a handful of things that were essentially universal that they almost all said that they try to do. And this was, again, both in the military and the civilian side. And then what I tried to do was I tried to see if there was evidence in the literature to support those different skills or tools. So what, I, what it boiled down to was uh, a handful of things that I think we can do on a regular basis that you can adapt into your own practice that will help you. Uh, manage or deal with acute stress in the moment. And the, the acronym I came up with was uh, BTSF for uh, Beat the Stress Fool, kind of like you said. And it is essentially kind of an acronym, but it's just a way to help remember those those handful of skills. B stands for breathe. It's essentially tactical breathing. It's what we call it in the military. Other people have referred to it as box breathing or square breathing. And all it is is a, a controlled respiratory cycle. If you think about it, your respiratory system is really one of the only autonomic functions that you have conscious control over. There's some evidence to support that you can help modulate your level of arousal by controlling how you breathe. Different martial arts have known this and employed it for you know, centuries. And it's been used in athletics, and I don't see why it shouldn't be used in medicine. So basically what it is is just, like I said before, a controlled respiratory cycle where you take a breath in for about three or four seconds, hold it for three or four seconds, breathe out for three or four seconds, and then hold it out for three or four seconds. And I kind of like to think of that as throwing the, when things are going off the rails and your heart rate is sort of beating out of control and you're, you're starting to get to the point where you experience that sort of cognitive fog from the stress. I think of it as kind of throwing the e-brake on there and sort of beginning to slow your heart rate down and, and a very simple skill that you can do consciously to begin to take back over uh, what psychologists call your internal locus of control. The fact that you are able to control, you may not be able to control the circumstances around you, but you can control your actions and how you respond. The next step is T, which is self-talk. And this is basically about reorienting your brain, cognitive reframing to how a situation presents itself to you. Remember, I was talking about one of the cruxes of the whole stress responses, you think or your brain thinks that you're not capable or this presents some sort of threat to you because you might fail. What talk does is it reframes things in your brain and it tries to take what may seem like a very dangerous, stressful situation where you may not be able to handle things and turns it into more of a challenge where you could potentially make a, a big difference in someone's life and help someone out. So it would be basically saying to yourself phrases of affirmation and support, which I know sounds a little sounds a little fluffy. It sounds like a little kind of a little engine that could, but it does a really good job of changing the way your brain looks at things, keeping things positive. You can use phrases that also are clinical in nature. So you can basically, it could be anything from developing like a mantra. Like if you ever heard, my, one of my favorites is uh, Rich Levitan, one of the emergency physicians that does a lot of airway training and airway talk, who I'm sure you've heard about, yeah. um, has like a mantra for oxygenating people that's essentially sit them up, jaw forward, O's through the nose, right? Mm -hmm. So for someone who's really sick, you could, you could repeat that to yourself, which is basically very directive mm -hmm. phrase. So you're talking about it being fluffy. I think that's the word you used. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up with a mom who was a PhD educational psychologist. Ah, so self-talk was her was her area. She's retired now. Um, so I grew up with a mom who I heard a lot of reframing and giving me new scripts to tell myself, especially mm -hmm. in the academic yeah. setting. The one mm -hmm. I've used in the out-of-hospital setting, one that I've said out loud to, to my team a lot, and I think that's something with your talk, it's definitely self-talk, but then paramedics as leaders of calls also have to assist other providers in their own regulation of their, their stress response. And one of the things I've said out loud to team members is, okay, slow down. We've been here before. Um, when like everything feels like you're it's stacked against you, basically the resuscitation is not going in the direction that you hope for it to be. I'm curious if what, what do you say to yourself or to, out loud to your team? So generally what I have to do is if things are really starting to go off the rails, almost call a timeout or be like, all right, hang on a second, reprioritize everything and be like, all right, basically 
kind of what you said. Like, we can do this. We can take care of this. We're going to take it step by step. So you go over here. What I want you to do is go ahead and take the bag, and I want you to ventilate her. So go ahead. Yeah, good. Bring your jaw up right into the bag just like that. You're doing perfect. All right, now let's uh, let's address this blood pressure thing. We failed three times with uh, IV sticks. I want you to put in bilateral hum- uh, humoral air- IOs right now, and we'll at least get some access. And then you just sort of take it little piece by piece, and along the way sort of talk people through this. And I think that um, whether it's, again, action-directed or just supportive in the sense that, hey, we can do this, you know, step by step. We've done this before. And Scott Weingart on MCRED, I think he uses a hard stop where he literally says the word stop. And I've observed that at the local trauma center where we do rotations. The first time I saw it, um, the attendings say, all right, everybody stop, stop. I thought I, I misunderstood it as being like admonishing or that he was disciplining the people in the room. When in reality, he was resetting everyone's brain or hoping right. to. Right. So then, so the S is for seeing. Yeah. So visualization or or mental practice. So this is something that can be used just to sort of practice in general, or uh, I think it's particularly useful in stressful circumstances when you're when you're going to do something. It would be really cool if every time you went to RSI a patient that was uh, really sick or had a difficult airway, you could get a couple practice runs in, right? That would be pretty neat. <laughs> as it turns out, visualizing the steps of a procedure before actually doing it, as far as your brain's concerned, is very much like actually doing that procedure or doing that thing in reality. And so you actually look at fMRI pictures of people's brains who are actually mentally rehearsing something and actually performing the tasks. They're incredibly similar. There's recently been at least a couple of investigations in the world of emergency medicine looking at people mentally practicing for resuscitation. And it seems at least the preliminary evidence would indicate that there's some benefit. So before people are going to do a needle decompression or before you're going to intubate a patient or before you even arrive on scene at a motor vehicle collision, sort of envisioning the steps of what things are going to look like when you get out of the vehicle and when you approach the scene or as you're getting your laryngoscope and your bougie and all of your airway equipment together, visualizing what it's going to look like when you put the laryngoscope in the mouth and slide it down the tongue and begin to visualize the posterior oropharynx and then then you should see the epiglottis and then you should see the glottic opening and so on and so forth can actually be very beneficial. And I encourage our students to do that the night before we skills test. I tell them we have these Mm -hmm. very discrete, what you've called incrementalized task analyses that are broken down Mm -hmm. incredibly detailed and they're such an asset. I encourage them the night before they're going to test to read through it and put away the paper and just close your eyes and mentally rehearse every single step. It's what I did when I was in paramedic school and I don't think I knew what I was doing, but I had tremendous success and it shaved off a bunch of time that I had to do in the lab. Mm -hmm. I could do it at home right before bed. Yeah, so I think one of the things that really stood out in my mind over time was that, believe it or not, like when I first started out as as a young paraescuman, as a young PJ, I didn't believe any of this stuff. Like if you had told me these things, I would have told you it was just psychobabble BS and that really I'm going to sit there and like tell myself I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, like, or, you know, visualize things. How can just thinking about something in any way prepare you to do it more so or just as well as doing something practically? But when I saw that there were these guys in the special operations community, really elite operational personnel, like these 225 tattooed SF guys and Navy SEALs that were combat veterans and incredibly proficient at their job, were doing a lot of these things, not because they had read like the literature and they were familiar with it from an academic standpoint, but it's because they had adopted it into their performance regime like uh, as if they were elite athletes preparing for the Olympics or something like that. They had gradually refined these techniques when I saw that, I was like, wow, maybe there's actually something to this. And then when I started to explore the evidence behind these things and realizing that these were not unfamiliar to the world of sports psychology, they were not unfamiliar to other high-risk occupations like NASA or law enforcement, there was some real validity to this stuff. And then I really, then it really turned my head and uh, I started to get into it. So. 
And crazy that it hasn't been formally taught in emergency medicine. And thankful that yeah. you're thankful that honestly you're you're leading the charge with that. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, but, I mean, know, it's, it's, it sounds wild. Like you, you, you're, you're, you're like the quarterback for a major NFL team, or you're playing in the NBA, and you will spend a bunch of money, or your team will spend a boatload of money to have a psychologist come and talk to you. And granted, th- these non-technical skills, you still have to be very talented and have to actually practice playing the sport, right? But this is sort of like the icing on the cake, and this is the edge, or provides you with a little bit of the psychological edge you need to perform under stress. So these elite teams and athletes are paying a lot of attention to it and paying a bunch of money to have people help train them with it. But when it comes to us providing emergency (laughs) medical care to save people's lives in and outside of the hospital, we haven't really picked up on it. I'm like, really? There's there's so little risk and a potential benefit. Why aren't we doing this? So were you formally taught these skills or was it those of you that wrote the cream that rose to the top of being a PJ? Did you just all have that in common that you uh, intuitively just start, were, were doing having had these habits? I think that it definitely wasn't formally taught. Although there's definitely a push in the military community these days to develop things like resilience, and uh, there's there's more of an emphasis on psychological training and preparation, both uh, both from a performance perspective and from a pathology prophylaxis perspective, preventing people from ha- from becoming psychological casualties and developing post-traumatic stress and that kind of stuff. For us, it wasn't necessarily taught, and it's something that emerged as the practice of other PJs and other SEALs and SF guys and people in the special operations community. So it was very anecdotal at first, and then sort of, for me anyway, developed from there. Very interesting. So it's tips that your buddy's given you, basically. Basically, yeah. Yeah. So we got through BTS, and now we're on F-Focus. So F-Focus is essentially using any what I like to call trigger words that have a very specific referent and bring your point of focus to bear on whatever you're doing. The whole idea of this is it's very easy to get distracted when you're stressed out. It's very difficult to maintain absolute focus, especially when it comes to executing a particular skill or procedure or even reading through a set of lab values or looking at a patient history, right? But it's essential that you do that because although we like to think we multitask, right, what we're really doing is doing one thing after another or going back and forth between things very quickly. Uh, And what we also know is that when you lose your focus, when you lose attention, you tend to make errors, you tend to miss things, and things don't really go as well. So the idea is to have a trigger word or something that centers you and brings your attention to bear on whatever it is you're doing at the moment. So the, the word I use is quite simply focus. Other people use different short phrases or words, whatever it may be. But the point is that it brings your attention to bear on a particular task that you're trying to accomplish. The classic one that I think of is the person squeezing the BVM attached to an ET tube gets distracted by the resuscitation going on around them. And then suddenly they're hyperventilating the patient rather than focusing on that discrete skill of truly just counting. And then you've added on a P. So it's beat the stress full, and then you added on P for Padawan, which your Twitter handle is Recess Padawan. I had to look up what Padawan was. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a Star Wars thing, or what is this? Yeah, so it's it's a uh, it's a somewhat nerdy Star Wars reference, and actually came from we were training, we were doing a train up. You know, to be honest, I forget exactly what we were doing, but someone was like, "Dude, that's straight Jedi," and I like turned to them and I was like, "Yeah, well." You know, the force is strong, but I'm not a Jedi yet. And uh, and that's where the term Padawan came from. So I wonder if you'll ever shed it. Uh, probably not, because I'm just a, a chronic and perpetual student. Yeah. So the P uh, is for posture. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so some very interesting work has been done by a lady named Amy Cuddy. 
who looked at how posture, how your physical position in space can determine your level of confidence and comfort with a particular situation. So she did some work looking at people who were going to interviews in uh, in the business world. And she had a group of people take on what she called power poses, which were very open poses, your shoulders back, sort of standing, uh, standing up, chest out, versus people who sort of were in postures that were very closed, sitting down, hunched over at a table or head down a table or slouching in a chair before an interview. And what she found was that the people who assumed these sort of power positions did significantly better in the interview. And I think they were rated to be more of them were ready to be sort of hireable or offer the job or something like that. Don't quote me exactly on what their metric was, but Mm -hmm. they seem to do better in these interviews. That has recently been sort of questioned and there's sort of mixed evidence on it. But just to think that how you hold yourself in space, you know, how you're standing at the head of a bed or how you're sitting in the airway seat in an ambulance determines your performance is sort of an interesting thing, right? It's a very simple thing that you could do and potentially manage the the acute stress a little bit better. There is literature that supports verbal self-talk as Mm -hmm. improving performance. So it's an easy jump for me that nonverbal self-talk, basically you're you're watching yourself, you see yourself not shaking, you see yourself standing firmly on two feet. That sends a message to a part of your brain that I think is listening that you don't know is listening. Um, Mm -hmm. And it becomes this little loop. Yeah, exactly. I think it's totally plausible. Although I must admit, of the various skills, the P part, the posture, is probably the one that has the least substance in the evidence base. So it's still somewhat controversial there. But I I still incorporate it because the way I look at it, again, is this sort of like risk versus benefit thing, Mm -hmm. right? If it's free and it's simple and all I have to do is sit up and say like a particular phrase to myself and that may improve my care or make me have a little bit more clarity in my thought process, then I'm totally about it. Yeah, I posted that video on Facebook and uh, Amy Cuddy's video and said, you know, I've used it with some students who lacked confidence. And someone quickly pointed to me uh, that there's some data that's saying she may have come out a little too quickly with uh, her own data that it's not been, a- they have, no one's been able to replicate it, I think is what, mm-hmm. what came up. Yeah. So we talked about mental rehearsal earlier and how on the way to a call, I think this is a crucial time in a paramedic's performance on the way to the call, what happens then? Some of the actions that are taken are just about staying loose. And so they'll joke and um, mm-hmm. And then other times they are verbally out loud or even with self-talk, kind of walking them through the steps of what they plan to do, getting each other in a shared mental model and then mentally rehearsing. I see benefits of that. And then the the potential negative side could be you're basing all of that based on dispatch information and then you get to a call and it's something completely different. The easy example I have is I was dispatched to a fall. So actually, we didn't mentally prep at all. Uh, those get to be kind of routine. And then when we got there, um, it was cardiac arrest. And so we were behind the behind the eight ball on that one. Can you comment on how mental rehearsal or that mental prep on the way to a call could, or do you think it could decrease your mental fluidity uh, with fluidity being just your ability to adapt as things are coming up? And I, I think so, that's a really hard question to answer. So I'm curious to see what you're going to say. So I think that it can potentially. and But this is like classic EMS stuff, right? I mean, you get dispatched for one thing and you show up and it's something totally different. They're having trouble breathing, but it's because the lady's been sick for five months and you know she's developed a chronic cough and they get asked, are you having trouble breathing? Like, yeah, you know what? I've, been, I've had a little trouble breathing, right? Not what we think, right? So we go in thinking one thing and it comes, it turns out it's something totally different. Could you rehearse things enough to cause you to have a cognitive anchoring bias. Yeah, potentially. I think that 
that potential is kind of low. I think that m- the mental rehearsal works best for things that are compartmentalized, like intubation, airway maneuvers, setting up different drugs or mixing different drips, things that when you decide you need to mix up a norepinephrine drip or you need to do a particular skill, that that, that skill is essentially straight. It's like a, you know like going between stops on the subway or a train. You get on here and you get off there. There's very little along the way that's going to change your management or change that skill. The other thing is allowing yourself to let that mental model that you're developing with your team change. So, you know, in the instance you were talking about, you you get called for someone who passes out and falls down. You show up on scene and yes, they've passed out and they've fallen down, but you immediately recognize that pass out, fell down, looks very different from purple lying there, not breathing lifeless, right? So as soon as you recognize things in the environment around you that don't meet the pattern of the model that you developed, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as things start to look somewhat different than what you pictured in your head, you have to immediately back off and reconsider what you've been thinking. So this is that balance between pattern recognition and analytical approach to to medical stuff. When things are very emergent and the pattern is very clear, i.e., someone's not breathing and they're purple, you need to find a way to open their airway and start ventilating them, right? Versus, oh, someone's kind of sick, they're breathing kind of fast, they're maybe tachycardic and sort of borderline hypotensive, but they're not about to die this minute. And it's not clear to me what's going on. I really have to begin to think very carefully about my differential and uh, how I want to proceed. That is essentially what I think of when I think of changing that that rehearsal or that pattern that you've built or that mental model you've developed on the way to a call. As soon as you get there and they're like, hmm, you know what? This thing isn't like what I was expecting and that thing's like not like what I was expecting. All right, it's time to take a couple steps back and really think about the situation. Yeah, good. Thank you for that. Um, you brought up anchoring. And so uh, I know that you're in med school now. Are there certain things that you say to yourself to keep your differential list broad? Ooh, that's a really good question. Hmm. Not not necessarily. You know, there's that nothing that I really say to myself. Mm-hmm. I, my general approach is the sicker the person is, the more acute the situation, the more I feel like we can focus in on the things that I need to fix right now. Right. And I can pattern match and recognize those things because they're generally very clear cut, right? Chest compressions, breathing for somebody, getting vascular access, etc. The more complicated things are and the more time I have, I generally start to broaden the differential or at least allow myself the time to begin to think about a very wide and broad differential. Does that that make sense? It does, because the first thing I teach students to ask is, what's the worst this could be? And that's essentially what you're saying. Like we we sort through those first. Um, And then when you've decided it's not any of those, or you're starting to go uh, realize that they're pretty stable, then you have time to really go into more analysis phase. And the question I recommend asking is, what else could this be? Rather than, you know, I'm going down this path, what else could it be? It's very simple, really. Right, right. And I think it, I, w- I would include in there too, acting so that you give yourself the time to think that way. So like if you come across someone who's, you know, unconscious on the ground with, you know, agonal respirations, as soon as you begin to effectively ventilate that person, oxygenate that person, and you realize that they're perfusing well, it's sort of like putting your finger in the dike, right? Mm-hmm. You sort of like stop the really bad stuff from happening, and you give yourself the time to say, okay, what could this be? It could be sepsis, it could be DKA, it could be this, it could be that, da 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 and you, you, know, you sort of go down the line. Yeah. You've encouraged something called cognitive offloading. Can you describe what that is and things people can do to help with that? Yeah, so it's interesting. A lot of people have looked at this concept of how how your brain deals with lots of information, how you process lots of information. And as it turns out, in the moment, you have essentially what we believe is, you know, your long-term memory can't essentially be quantified. I mean, you remember tons and tons of stuff. But in the moment, your working memory is essentially finite. The stuff you can actively think about right now is finite, almost like the RAM on your computer. And I hate using the computer analogy for the brain because your brain is, uh, there's so much so much more nuance and beauty in how the human brain works. But for purposes of this explanation, I'll stick to this. 
right? And your RAM is essentially finite. You can only run so many programs on your computer at any given time, and your brain can only do so much. I like to think of it as bandwidth on uh, internet or Wi-Fi. If you're downloading a whole bunch of podcasts and trying to run a whole bunch of other programs, everything just runs really slow or things stop running entirely. Your brain is kind of the same way. The added problem is when you're stressed out, that cognitive bandwidth, if you will, shrinks even more. So you can manage less stuff than before. Mm -hmm. The challenge is if your bandwidth is X, how do you manage that available resource appropriately so you can get things done? And I think there's a lot of things you can do. One is the things we've just been talking about, the BTSF stuff. If you're thinking about, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. Oh my gosh, this lady's pregnant. Uh, what happens if the baby dies? You know, like, uh, and you're thinking about all this bad stuff. Well, guess what? You're using part of your bandwidth to think about things and imagine a future that hasn't even happened yet, which is simultaneously building your anxiety and stressing you out and occupying that bandwidth. Mm -hmm. So you got to stop that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and you can use some of those BTSF techniques to manage your stress. And the other thing is how you learn your technical skills. We usually think of these sort of cognitive offloading techniques as non-technical skills, but think about it. Think about the very first time you intubated someone or you mm -hmm. started an IP, right? Like you really got to think about it because you're new at it. The process isn't automated and that, that takes bandwidth to think about those things. But if you train yourself appropriately so you know that you can do a surgical crike in your sleep or you can manipulate a laryngoscope incredibly comfortably and know your airway structures very well and you can start an IV, you can get blood from a stone with one hand tied behind, behind your back, that frees up some of your cognitive bandwidth because those processes are now automated and you don't have to use that bandwidth to think about them. And there's a whole bunch of other things, too. You can use different tools. So checklists are a good way to do it. You can't checklist everything. Checklists don't solve all your problems, but they can be helpful. Things like the weight-based Braslow tape is a great thing, right? Mm -hmm. Offloading some of that math by um, using a, a well-established and clinically validated tool, whether it's that Braslow tape or there are a couple of others available. There's a whole slew of things that you can do, and up to and including sharing some of that bandwidth, right? So I can't tell you how many times you go to an outside hospital and you have a patient crashing and there's so much that needs to get done. There are very well-trained nurses, competent nurses there. There's a PA or emergency physician and you hand them the stack of paper or you know, you say, this is her mother. I need you to talk to her mother and figure out what happened here. Right now, I have to work with my partner and we're going to get vascular access. We're going to get this lady oxygenating well. And then we'll put our minds together and sort of come up with the underlying problem here. So there's a, a lot of techniques that you can use to sort of provide some of that offloading. And to go back to the automating of psychomotor skills, is that mm -hmm. through repetition? It's definitely through repetition. It's definitely through extended practice time. But that, that repetition and that practice has to be very deliberate. So it has to be going about things in a very focused, purposeful manner in a way that you can get immediate feedback, whether you're doing things right. That practice has to be continually pushing you outside of your comfort zone. And it also has to be variable. So if you do the same, if you have the same mannequin in your fire department or your aircraft hangar or at your ambulance base, and you think you're practicing by continually intubating the same mannequin the same way, you couldn't be more wrong. You have to vary that practice. The repetition has to be spaced out over time as well. Those are all optimal ways to sort of develop that automaticity. I have a funny story about the variable piece. So, <laughs> yeah. so we're very good at being deliberate and, ha and getting quick expert feedback. We'll stop people in the middle of a skill and don't let them continue and do that step over again. And we're very mm -hmm. regimented in how we teach psychomotor skills. Something we realized we were doing poorly, our students would start IVs on the mannequin arm. They'd have to introduce themselves and ask the patient their name. And we were getting lazy and just saying, you know, my name's Mr. Arm, right? So <laughs> instead of creating a name for this patient, we did it like that so many times, so many reps. So a student went to their first clinical rotation, finally on a real patient and said, okay, Mr. Arm, here's what I'm going to do. And they, these words came out of their mouth that <laughs> it's, yeah. it's funny. 
but it's scientific. It's that that right. synapse had cemented. They were probably feeling some stress and just defaulted to training, right? The training that, by my responsibility, had had fallen short. Yeah. You know, I just I just thought of something too, in terms of the practice, and we were talking a little bit earlier about developing those mental models and sort of mentally rehearsing before you go in. I think that one of the most important aspects of rehearsing that keeps your mind flexible and prevents you from sort of tunneling in on different things is imagining what could possibly go wrong. And I think this is a critical skill that I didn't learn for some time. You have to sort of play the devil's advocate and be like, okay, so this is a person, they tell you, that the person's complaining of chest of like eight out of 10 chest pain that just started. You're pretty sure they're the person's having a heart attack. As you're going out to that call, you not only have to think about sort of what dispatch information you've been given, but think about like what could possibly go wrong. So what am I going to do if I know this person's having, or I think this person might be having a heart attack and I get there and they're not breathing. What are we going to do if they're breathing and they're okay, but all of a sudden they become hypotensive? What are we going to do if they're having chest pain, but they're also bradycardic? Running down all these pathways is part of the mental practice. And it does, I think, I don't have, really have any evidence to support this at this point, um, also maintain a very flexible mindset because you're like warming up your brain and you're testing out all the different things that could happen. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. That's good. And you're talking about inserting challenges into your scenario and how you would handle it. You're getting close to describing uh, what you've talked about with stress inoculation. Our approach where I teach is that the very first scenarios are ultra simplistic and mm -hmm. will go well, right? We will make, yep. make sure of that. And then we uh, slowly, progressively introduce more challenges into the scenarios. Anything to add about stress inoculation? Yeah, the two big things that I always that I always try and impress upon people. Number one, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, like the stress inoculation is three pieces, right? First, you have to introduce the material, then you have to let them practice the skills, and then you slowly add on stress, right? It's not just putting people in stressful situations. It's more nuanced than that. So what I see a lot of the time is people say, yeah, we, we put our students in very stressful scenarios. And the key pieces in my mind are actually the first two steps. Number one, explaining to people and adjusting their expectations. So just the stuff that we were talking about, letting them know that you know, it's totally natural when you get into a situation that you're going to be stressed, you're going to forget things, that is totally normal. And even sharing with them personal stories, like it's happened to me, it's happened to John, it's happened to this guy, it's happened to that guy, and make people feel comfortable with the understanding that, wow, this, is, this happens to everyone, and it's going to happen to me. And that's okay because it's a natural process. And letting them also know that there are things that we can do to sort of offset those things, right? Mm -hmm. The second part is letting them practice those skills, right? So if we talked about the BTSF stuff, let's say someone – I uh, have this mantra that I always tell myself before I go and do something that's very stressful because they were a – football player or they were a field hockey player and now they want to use that in medicine. So when you're doing your individual skills practice at the mannequin head, intubating or starting IVs on Mr. Arm, <laughs> uh, <laughs> letting them or encouraging them to practice saying that stuff. The skills practice is not just about practicing the technical skills, but also in conjunction with those technical skills, practicing the psychological skills. And then slowly introducing them to scenarios or, or training events with increased and higher levels of stress. Throughout it, I think, and part of the, actually really more part of step one, the appraisal process, is explaining to students what's going to happen. Because sometimes you just look like a jerk if you go in there and you really amp up the level of stress and put in simulated patient actors that are being annoying and asking them questions and whatnot. Telling them that, look, I'm on your side. We're not doing this to mess with you. We're doing this to help prepare you for very challenging circumstances you will encounter mm -hmm. is critically important as well. I, I see a lot of people moving into step three 
without doing step one and step two. Right. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I haven't heard you say that before. Tell them, like, here's my intention. And we're going to, we're actually practicing uh, your self-talk right now. I want you to practice your breathing. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's what I may have done to my daughter the other night with jujitsu is I just threw her in and I didn't say like, hey, be (laughs) be prepared to practice your coping or... Yeah, and I, I think in general, like, I've experienced that in the military, you know, like, when I was going through training, the selection process was brutal, and they kicked the crap out of us, but, and, you know, you're just like, oh my gosh, these people, these, these, these are not human beings that are, like, torturing us. <laughs> when you get to a certain point where they weeded out a lot of the, well, the people who aren't prepared or aren't, don't want to be there for the right reasons and they're still torturing you and they come up to you and be like hey guys you know, we're, we're pushing you this hard for a reason because you're going to have to be prepared to do the unthinkable you start to process it differently right. when attending in the hospital you know just starts whacking you with questions left and right what's the first branch of this vessel what's you know the anatomy here what are the different layers going into the abdomen what's this what's that and you're like oh man this guy's just ripping me apart and rapid firing me pimping me with questions versus someone who's like, as we go through this procedure, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you a lot of questions, not because I'm trying to make you feel dumb or stupid, but you know, I really want to understand the limits of your knowledge so I can help you become better. And because these are questions you're going to run into when you're operating or when you're doing this procedure, it totally changes it in your mind, right? You go from being like, man, this guy's Absolutely. just being a pain in the butt to, well, this guy's really trying to help me. In order to do that, he's going to have to push me. That's really good advice. And I know a few educators that also listen to the podcast and they'll benefit from from hearing you say that um, because we, we're wanting to have high fidelity simulations. We're wanting them to for there to be loud noises or just simulate the real environment actually of, out of hospital right. medicine, but we're wanting to do it in a humane way. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think part of it is part of the nuance is being a sensitive educator who can sit there and be like, who can somewhat adapt each individual run to the students and to their level of competency and confidence. Mm-hmm. So not every run is going to be the same and sort of on the fly. Sometimes you need to be able to adjust or dial back the stress level. Like, you know, I, I really think we might be pushing it a little too hard. And so I'll pull one of those role players back or we'll adjust things so that it doesn't go totally wrong. And on the same hand, you might have someone who's crushing it, who's doing so well. And you'd be like, OK, well, you know, it's time to make things a little bit more spicier. Let's push this, their capabilities even harder. Both of those are appropriate, but you really have to be uh, attentive to what's going on. Right. Differentiated learning is what you're describing. Right. As a PJ, you are considered a premier performer under stress. Pararescue school has high attrition, 80 to 90% attrition. What uh, sacrifices have you made personally in order to perform at that level? Oh, so. Are, are, so yeah. the, I'm asking about work-life balance. When I think of work-life balance, I think people always think of things being balanced evenly. Yeah. And I think it's okay and appropriate at times in your life to have a balance, but that balance can be offset somewhat. It uh, can be, you know, that I like to think of like the teeter-totter can be leaning one way or the other, but as long as one end doesn't slam into the ground, you're okay. Mm -hmm. DJ school is kind of like that because for 10 weeks, and I actually got injured my first time around, so I had to go through twice. So roughly, you know, 20 weeks, you give up, I personally, and a lot of guys do, give up alcohol, um, you're not really drinking, you're not really partying very hard. Everything is essentially focused on surviving the next 10 weeks. That also includes sometimes isolating yourself from friends and family because you need to be incredibly focused on the on the task at hand and lock out a lot of the extraneous noise from your life. I mean, your family are a big support overall and you need that social support system, but sometimes you just need to focus on on the task at hand. A good example too is like medical school. Like right now, this year, one of the things I'm, I'm not very proud of is I used to work out all the time. 
it was part of what I did in high school. It was part of what I did in college. It was part of what I did uh, in PJ training and when I was in the military. And even the first two years of medical school, cross training, running, climbing, hiking was a really important part of my life. Unfortunately, this year when you're working, you know, 70 to 80 hours a week in the hospital, some of that has to get sacrificed. So I've been in sort of maintenance mode and have, you know, maybe go for a run or a hike every now and then. But I have to give up a lot of it so I can focus on studying and getting really learning the clinical information and getting the clinical experience that I need. There's always some form of a balance, but it definitely tips one way or another from time to time. So, yeah. Thanks for thanks for your answer on that. Do you have any books that you could recommend to paramedic students? Anything that's been inf- influential in your life? Oh my gosh. Oh, the list of books. So most recently, a short list of my favorite. In the interview with Gary Klein, who's, I think, uh, just an amazing guy in the world of decision-making. Anything that he's written, in particular, Streetlights and Shadows, I think is a fantastic book that looks at how experts make decisions. You talk about performance. There's a book that's recently been out called Peak mm-hmm. by a guy called Anders Ericsson, who's has done some amazing research in how people get very, very good at what they're training to do. It has some very useful advice, I think, in training and expertise in general. So it's a really cool book. Another one of my favorite authors recently is a guy named Charles Duhigg, hmm. who wrote two books. One is The Power of Habit, and the other is, I think it's Smarter, Faster, Better, hmm. um, which is a, fan, a really, really cool book that combines some interesting neuroscience and social science He's a writer for the New York Times, so how he writes about it, his writing style, I think, is very entertaining and interesting. Oh, man, I could, I could just go on and on and on. There's, I think, a lot that they'd benefit from, but that's the short list. Yeah, thank you. Where are you going with, with med school? So, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure exactly what I'm going to do. I know it's going to be critical care to some extent. I absolutely love that type of medicine. Whether that's going to be anesthesia or emergency medicine, I'm not completely set yet. I'm still looking at both of those. And in terms of big career goals, I think that I want to begin to incorporate this human factor stuff into the world of resuscitation, whatever that looks like for me, whether it's uh, anesthesia, critical care, or emergency medicine, critical care, to improve the way that that we resuscitate patients that are really, really sick, trauma, medical, or otherwise. The portion of human factors that I'm most interested in is the engineering psychology. So looking at how people think, how their brains work, and how we can apply that to be better medical care providers. The paramedic in me hopes that you pick emergency medicine because under emergency medicine, you can subspecialize in EMS. I'm sure there are a lot of paramedics in the world that would love to have you as a medical director someday. I just had to put that plug in there. Oh, I thank you. That's <laughs> that, that's on the list too. Some oh, good. Of my, uh, yeah, some of my mentors are, have definitely done the EM uh, to EMS fellowship route, which I think is is super cool. Unfortunately, I think my wife will limit me to only like two or three residencies and three or four fellowships, so I, I can't do everything. <laughs> have you, this is switching gears, pretty hard switch. Have you ever had a failure that was so big that you went home after that failure and thought, I'm done, like this is... Uh, either in your military experience or in your medical experience? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The biggest one off the top of my head was actually uh, in the training pipeline as a PJ. So I actually ended up failing the combat dive program. So, I mean, I made it through PJ school. I had, or the initial indoctrination training. Everything was going really well. And then I failed miserably in dive school first time around. So that was a big hit. You know, you're doing really well and you made it through one of the most challenging courses in the military and you've been selected. And then you go on to another very challenging course in the military and you fail. So I ended up failing one of the evaluations called uh, one-man competency, where they basically take you down to the bottom of the pool, you're breathing off the scuba tanks, you have a blacked-out mask on, so you can't see what's going on, and they rip the regulator out of your mouth, and they tie it in knots, and they flip you over and slam you against the side of the pool and pull off your weight belt and do all kinds of things. The first time around, I was unable to accomplish the exercise. The second time around, I tried really hard and ended up passing out at the bottom of the pool. Also, 
failing the exercise. <laughs> I had to go home with my tail between my legs and explain to the commander why I failed when I should have been uh, I should have been ready. And there's a number of times, you know, where I felt like I didn't perform at my best in medicine too probably too many times to uh to recount but plenty and each i think the the take-home message for each of those failures is reviewing what i did reviewing what i didn't do and allowing that experience to just temper my resolve to get better right a lot of times we look at somebody like you and we think this guy is just an overnight success. Look at him. He's all shiny and his CV is, is long. But what what it represents in actuality is a, a lot of overcoming failure, grit, drive, and just getting up every morning and you, you keep doing it. Yeah. It's a lot of incremental improvements and a lot of two steps forward and sort of one step back sometimes even. It's a consistent dedication to hard work and success and uh, and learning that really gets you there over the course of years, for sure. Accompanied by, as you pointed out, lots of mistakes uh, and failure sometimes. So, have you always been mentally tough like that? No. <laughs> when did no. when did that happen? Uh, um, <laughs> so, really, I would say it's I've been. Um, I guess kind of gritty throughout, you know, like my formative years in adolescence and in college as well. But I think that the the ability to maintain mental toughness was really taught to me by a lot of a lot of the guys I went through selection with in the Air Force and was also sort of reinforced by both my instructors in training and a lot of the guys in the special operations community that I worked with in the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps. That, too, was something that was sort of learned over time, again, from being in situations where I wasn't mentally tough and I, I mentally quit on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, also, times where I was successful and stuck it out and was able to complete a task and seeing other guys who were experiencing the same thing or, or had a lot of tactical experience and had developed tools and techniques to maintain their mental toughness, so... Definitely a learned skill. Yeah, I think it it might be for everyone. I think of very few traits as being inherent and that most character traits like that are grown with a growth mindset. I think you've talked about the plasticity of the brain and you can basically grow it in whatever direction you want. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that you're, knowing that you've got a listeners of paramedics, anything you're itching to communicate to them? I would always encourage people in EMS to think big and act with it. think big and act within their guidelines is basically uh, how I say to a lot of people. I think as the paramedic career field in general transitions from being way more technical, like a emergency medical technician, to mm-hmm. m- way more clinical and, and thinking more like a clinician, it's really important that we stress the importance of continuing education while recognizing that it's very important to not just, you know, listen to a podcast and hear Scott Weingart talk about, you know, putting a patient on ECMO and then, you know, deciding that you're going to cannulate someone at, a, at an outside hospital because, you know, you heard a podcast about it. Mm-hmm. Um but I think pushing people to continually try to expand the capability of their clinical thought process and add knowledge and information is really, really important. Yeah, thank you. And you're the perfect guest for this show. It's called Medic Mindset. And I believe I was already uh, thinking about the podcast when I saw your material and I thought, this is great. Like somebody else is interested in the thought processes uh, behind the the technical skills. Uh, so thank yeah. you. I, I hope you'll keep running with it because I think there's a, a void right there that you, you could fill in. Well, I'm trying, but I also wanted to thank you for putting this together because I think there's a lot there's a lot in social media out there, especially in the emergency medicine and, and paramedicine and pre-hospital medicine side that talks a lot about clinical topics. You know, you'll have podcasts on, you know, thyroid storm <laughs> and, you know, intubating and RSI and, you know, ventilators and this, that and the other thing. But really, that's only half the game. 
right? right. Uh, knowing the information and knowing the technical skills is very different from being able to apply it in the moment at 2 a.m. on the side of the highway. And until we start thinking about how our minds work and the approach, the mind of the resuscitationist, mm-hmm. we'll never really get there. We'll never really achieve our our full capability until we consider all these other human factors in addition to the clinical factors. Yeah. Well, let's let's wind down right there. I thank you again for being on the show, and I hope I hope I've forged a friendship with you now that I can ring you up when I have questions. Yeah, anytime. Yeah, I appreciate anytime. it. Anytime. Anything you need, feel free to reach out. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank yeah. you so much. Take care. Stay safe out there, all right? All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, guys. One important message before you go. I get a lot of messages from listeners asking how they can support the podcast. The answer is really simple for me. Share your favorite episode with a friend who hasn't listened before. The podcast is a creative outlet for me. I enjoy it. And the majority of the joy has come from sharing it with others and hearing from you guys. So connect with me on a Facebook group I made called Medic Mindset Group and on Twitter at GingerLockATX. Y'all be safe out there. I was really, really blown away. Um, so I'm getting a little like, static on my end. I hate to interrupt you. Do I sound staticky? Yeah, you sound, yeah, you sound crystal right clear right now. Uh, okay. Um, I don't know what, what changed, but every time you talk, I pick up static. Maybe take your thing out and put it back in from your headphones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hang on one second, one second. <laughs> okay, say something now. Okay, can you hear me oh, now? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, much better. Much better.